Welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime, the podcast that explores the spectrum of human experience from shadow to light to unity, and how the practices of yin yoga and meditation can help facilitate a realization of one's unified nature. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm glad you're here. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Perceptive listeners in the audience out there will have noticed a slight amendment to my introduction just there in the podcast. And I should mention here briefly that I'm slightly adjusting the focus of the podcast now. From the very beginning, this podcast has been primarily focused on trying to explore the core themes relevant to the practice of yin yoga, namely the themes of the body in terms of its fascia, the the theme of the energy body and through the lens of traditional Chinese medicine, and then the the layer of the mind through the lens of meditation. Now, admittedly, much of the conversations of recent have been more focused on elements related to meditation. But going forward, my intention is now to expand the focus of the podcast to include themes relevant to the shadow aspects of being, so themes related to our shadows, themes related to the light aspects of our being, sort of themes related to the, the, the pristine, awakened nature of the mind, and the practices that lead to an apprehension of unification of being, whereby our shadow and light sides are not separated, divided, but experienced as a unified entity or unified whole. And I do plan to be more even-handed in terms of my distribution of these topics. So I plan to rotate through the core themes of the body, Chinese medicine and meditation on a more regular basis. So each month, the podcast will release one episode of a long-form interview with an expert from the field. And then roughly two weeks later, I'll be releasing a solo cast where I reflect on some of the practical applications of my guests' work that you can hopefully apply to the practice of yin yoga and or meditation. And so far, the feedback has been quite positive on this development and change. And I hope, I really do hope you enjoy the programming. Today's episode is a kind of sketch of reflections that I've created uh, based on my conversation with Dr. Richard Schwartz. And Dr. Richard Schwartz, again, is the founder of the psychotherapeutic model called Internal Family Systems. I personally have found it very helpful to work with this model and to apply Internal Family Systems strategies for working with members of my internal world or my own internal family. Internal family systems calls these inner members of our inner world subpersonalities or subparts. Um, and I'll be using that word part to refer to any of the internal members of my inner family. And I do hope some of the aspects of this approach will be helpful for you in terms of working with your own inner world and your own inner parts. But very quickly, before diving into this specific talk, I just want to mention, if you're at all interested in any of the weekly offerings that Terry and I offer, either the Dharma talk um, and meditation or any of our yin and yang yoga classes online, please head over to joshsummers.net. That's joshsummers.net, where you can find registration information, including drop-in and or monthly pass options for these uh, online offerings that we have. You'll also find information about our various online yin yoga teacher training modules, including the foundations module, the traditional Chinese medicine module, the mindfulness module, and yang module. 
All of that information and any questions you have can be found on the website, or you can drop us a line through the contact form on our webpage at joshsummers.net. So please let us know if you have any questions. Okay, now without further ado, I bring you some of my thoughts on applying the work of Dr. Richard Schwartz to the practice of yin yoga and meditation. Okay, now in reflecting on my interview with Dr. Richard Schwartz, at one point I was deeply struck by a statement he said towards the end of our conversation when we were discussing some of the ways of how someone might integrate aspects of internal family systems, his psychotherapeutic model, how someone might integrate that within a spiritual practice such as meditation or yin yoga. And Dick said something along these lines. He said, quote, if you can be an inner bodhisattva, it's much easier to be an outer bodhisattva, end quote. In other words, if we can relate to our inner world with care and tender compassion, it's easier to relate to our outer world with care and tender compassion. This comment stemmed from our shared observation that all too frequently, as one moves along a spiritual path, there are likely times where you or someone you know or myself might practice with an energy of derision or condemnation towards various parts of their self. If you think about it, phrases like monkey mind or caught up in chatter or a phrase like being lost in thought or wrapped up in a planning mode or spaced out or any of the other spiritual euphemisms that often get used to describe the process of thinking. And remember now, in the internal family systems model, the process of thinking can be thought of the way or the medium by which our internal parts actually communicate with us. And all of these attitudes, attitudes expressed in the, in the phrase monkey mind or caught up in chatter, these attitudes all suggest a kind of disdain or disgust for these parts that are thinking rather than an attitude of care and compassion. In a way, and this might seem a little extreme, but, but hear me out. In a way, any approach to practice that privileges silence over chatter or an approach to practice that privileges non-thinking over thinking, my argument is that these approaches carry with them a kind of internal bias against certain aspects of what could be part of the spectrum of being. Aspects, namely, the function and experience of the ability to think. And now, in contrast to that, coming at it with the language of internal family systems, um, our thoughts might be better framed. We can think of our thoughts as something akin to a kind of internal messaging system. It's a messaging system that enables various of our internal parts to communicate with our core self. In particular, we might consider how our recursive repetitive thought loops, the ones that kind of irritate us and that we wish would just go away, that those repetitive thought loops, the ones that feel like they don't turn off when we're, when we're in a yin yoga pose or in a session of meditation, the ones that keep rattling around and again and again and again, these types of thoughts can be seen and, and reframed as a messaging system for part of our, or parts of ourselves that are perhaps in exile or, or are in need of our care and attention. And I would say, and I've learned this the hard way, 
that there are real costs to be paid if we fail to pay careful attention to their messages of distress. So this whole approach is really one of learning how can we listen and welcome the messages from these parts of us and integrate them into the broader path or the, the broader process of becoming more integrated, harmonized, and awake. But before going much further on this theme of working with internal parts of yourself and how to work with those parts during meditation or a yin yoga practice, I want to make one observation with regards to the approach that Dr. Dick Schwartz recommended. And I want to briefly just compare that to the approach that was advocated by my previous guest on the podcast, Dr. Judson Brewer. Again, he was the mindful expert uh, on addiction. In a sense, I do think both doctors are offering something that share a core intention. They both aim to relieve suffering, especially the forms of suffering that are self-generated and in some sense, therefore, ostensibly unnecessary. And while they may share this core intention, I think they do deploy different tactical approaches to the matter of suffering And the distinctions between the two are worth noting, particularly, I think, because these distinctions also manifest in different approaches to meditation and spiritual practice, a point which which I'll come back to in just a moment. So just to quickly review, when Dr. Judson Brewer and I spoke about his approach to treating addiction, in his approach to working with various addictive parts or behaviors, his central aim is to help encourage the person suffering from the addiction to simply pay close attention to the actual experience of engaging with the addictive behavior. With smoking addiction, he teaches smokers to simply be more mindful of their actual experience when they smoke. And working in this way seems to highlight the intrinsically negative aspects of smoking, or more generally the negative aspects of the reward-seeking behavior i.e. the the smoker tastes in vivid detail just how unsavory a cigarette actually is. And this direct experience or direct perception of the drawbacks to the seeking gratification in this particular way, this leads, Brewer's research seems to show, over time to a, a reduction, and in many cases to a cessation, of the habit. In some sense, The self that wants to smoke sees over time how gross the experience is, and then the self lets go of it more readily. And I'll, broadly here, I'll I'll call this tactic a perceptual tactic. It's a perceptual uh, approach. Here, you're trying to gain a greater perceptual clarity with regards to the issues of the behavior. And with that magnified clarity of perception, often the problem is abandoned when its limitations and drawbacks are laid bare. Now, in contrast to this approach, Dr. Richard Schwartz's approach is one that I would call either a more relational or a more analytical approach. As I'll try to explain shortly, uh, Schwartz's approach encourages an investigation and open dialogue with the part or parts of ourself that are actually engaging with the problematic behavior in the first place. So rather than simply trying to change the behavior, that is through seeing the limitations of the behavior itself and letting the behavior change, the IFS or internal family systems model encourages looking into the part, the part of us, the inner part, that feels the need to engage with the behavior itself. And in Schwartz's therapeutic model, 
The idea is to listen deeply to this subpart's concerns, to its issues, so that the part can, in a way, unburden itself of the role it's taken on. It's a role that it's, where it's trying to protect us by generating some form of behavior that distracts or numbs us from a trigger. And I'm calling this a more relational approach because it explores the relationship we have to this part or the relationship that that part has to us. And I also call it analytical a bit more because this approach in a certain sense analyzes the dynamics of that relationship to the subpart. But again, let me be clear here. I don't, I personally don't have any formal psychological training. Um, I'm a trained acupuncturist. I'm not a psychologist, so I'm speaking about this with non-professional language, um, and, I, and I, I'm trying just to contextualize it in a, a mindfulness approach that you might explore in, your, in any of your various practices. But if I were to make a very broad concluding generalization here, it's this. It occurs to me that both Brewer and Schwartz, as I've been saying, are both offering methodologies to help attenuate unnecessary suffering. And this can be seen as the core emphasis of many of the world's spiritual traditions, especially Buddhism. Brewer's approach tends to emphasize increasing a perceptual clarity of the drawbacks of the, the suboptimal behavior, as well as, as well as bringing greater attention to the positive aspects of not engaging in certain behavior. In other words, this approach focuses more on the dynamics of the behavior itself. But approaching the same issue from another angle, or from the other side, as though picking up the same stick but from the other end, Schwartz's approach examines the roles and concerns of our subparts, the parts of us that propel us to take up the behavior in the first place. And this approach seeks to unburden the part of its role so that it no longer engages in the problematic or harmful behavior. And in re-listening to my conversation with Dr. Schwartz, I was struck by a comment he made regarding common understandings around addiction, or common misunderstandings around addictions. He said something to the extent that society in general, and psychotherapy, the psychotherapeutic world specifically, they tend to misunderstand the root of the addictive behavior. There's kind of a widespread popularized conception, he says, that the addictive behavior is the result of a kind of a character deficiency or a deficit of willpower, or that it's animated by a kind of a harmful impulse, an impulse to harm oneself. But from Schwartz's perspective, and, and, and particularly in, in reference to his own model of understanding the inner self, the destructive addictive behavior is paradoxically actually a gesture of care. It's a gesture of care in that the behavior is attempting to protect the person from the next level, more serious and severe course of action, which is all too often, unfortunately, suicide. So numbing out with alcohol or drugs literally protects the person from the next level of uh, behavior, which is often quite extreme, namely suicide. So yes, overusing alcohol or drugs is bad in the long term, we can all ima easily imagine that. But because this behavior protects against a graver threat in the moment, it will become positively reinforced, hence lending itself to the reward cycle, uh, reinforcing an, an addictive behavior or addictive relationship. 
So for this reason, I think it's why Schwartz feels it's so important to go to these parts of us, to go to these exiled and frozen parts, parts of us that were kind of frozen in time years ago, and to give these parts our care and attention and love so that they are no longer so reactive to certain triggers and are thereby able to unburden themselves of their addictive behavioral roles. And one of the reasons I think it's useful to develop a conceptual understanding of these two different approaches, the one that's more perceptual and the one that's more relational, is because both approaches have parallels to various approaches in spiritual practice world or in meditation world. A survey of some of the most common approaches to meditation will reveal a similar division between approaches whereby some meditative approaches tend to emphasize the content of experience which would be more like the Brewer model of looking closely at the content of a behavior, and meditative approaches that tend to examine the feeling, the immediate direct feeling of the sense of self that is at the center of experiencing suffering, distress, or dukkha. And this is much more of the Schwartz model of internal self-inquiry. And to my mind, both approaches work very well. And I really prefer to see them both as complementary yin-yang approaches to the issue of suffering or dukkha. Just like yin yoga complements and supports a yang yoga practice and vice versa, at times a deeper perception of a behavior is often the very thing that liberates. And at other times, a deep inquiry into the sub-self that takes up that behavior, looking to the aspects of the self that see the behavioral strategy as key for their safety and well-being that line of inquiry might be the very thing that liberates. But if we consider how all this might apply to a meditative process or how one might apply these models towards a meditative process, we might consider these applications. In general, Dr. Judd's approach might look like this. Within one's meditation practice, whenever there's an experience of distress, conflict, or challenge, Dr. Judd would likely encourage you to watch the feeling of the desire that seeks gratification in a particular behavior. This could be a desire to change posture, for example, or a desire to shift, or a desire to stop practicing, or to change practices to have a different practice. His encouragement is to simply just stay with the sense of seeking gratification in a behavior, to stay with it long enough to observe the desire of seeking gratification to stay with it long enough to see that seeking gratification to arise and fade away or dissolve. And I spoke much more about this particular approach in the recent episode entitled Kissing Tana, that's craving, Kissing Tana as it flies. So for a deeper dive into this particular approach, I encourage you to check out that episode, Kissing Tana as it flies, and we'll be linking to that in the show notes. But in this particular episode, I now like to focus on how Dr. Schwartz's approach might fit in with a practice of yin yoga or meditation. And what I'll be sharing with you is an application of internal family systems that I learned from my now-retired therapist, Jack Engler. Jack was one of the pioneering Westerners who helped bring the practice of insight meditation to North America in the 60s, along with figures like um, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield. And as a trained psychotherapist, Jack, his career focused on the convergences and divergences of Eastern spirituality and Western psychology. 
So in my own practice, I have found it enormously helpful to work with a mentor like Jack, someone who is conversant in both the language of liberation from the East and uh, the language of analytic psychotherapy from the West. And when I began working with Jack, I realized that I held an implicit assumption or expectation about practice that was really uh, driving a certain experience of practice. And that expectation or assumption was this, that simply when one progressed, my assumption was that as one progressed along the path, be it a meditative or yogic path, that as one progressed, I expected life would steadily get smoother and easier, that conflicts in life would naturally start to resolve, one sense of self would feel more integrated, healed, and at ease with things as they were. As one popular phrase used to say, every day in every way, it seemed things would get better and better on the spiritual path. And while that can be true at various times, there are phases of practice that are marked more by, at times they're marked more by personal upheaval or confusion or an increased sense of disorientation. And these challenging experiences are not so much due to a shortcoming or a regression in one's practice, like a, there's a fault in the practice in any way, as much as they are the result of a specific kind of progress in practice. And this is certainly how it felt to me when, when I returned home after a period of intensive practice in Myanmar in the early aughts. And as I came to understand and see more clearly in my work with Jack Engler, the intensive practice that I had done in Myanmar had started to, to sort of dissolve or reveal the illusory and insubstantial nature of my separate self sense or my egoic self. While in that intensive practice, in my moment-to-moment -moment experience, I would fail, I would fail again and again to find an owner of experience or to find the experiencer in the center of experience. All that was there was simply consciousness and the content of consciousness. But there was no separate me mediating between the two. And with this experience came many deeply liberative moments of peace, calm, and equanimity, all the good stuff we seek on the spiritual path. But also, and paradoxically, also as th that truer nature became clearer to me, the practice also increased a level of awareness of sorts around all the unresolved emotional wounds and neurotic behaviors or compensa compensatory strategies of the illusory self that I was waking up out of. And yet, even though I was waking up out of it, it was part of me still, and I, was, I could see myself still very attached to those um, points of pain and, and sort of unskillful behavior. And this, to me, felt very much like a good news, bad news scenario, and it was a bit confusing at first. One way of looking at it is you could say my practice had increased my light and power of my own awareness. I think that's just a, a, a basic consequence of any practice that emphasizes mindfulness. The more you do it, the more the power, the illuminative power of your awareness increases. With that increased awareness, there will be more light shining on the nature of experience and on the nature of the self that has that experience. And there can often be many pleasant, very blissful energetic experiences and states of consciousness along the path there. 
But that increased light of awareness will also often reveal more and more of all the unfinished business that the sense of self has that you're waking up out of, as I just said. And even though this experience can be deeply transformative and it's very important, it can leave one, and it left me, experiencing some deeply difficult energetic patterns to, to clean up. Specifically, when I returned from Myanmar, I had a lot of panic attacks and a generalized sense of disorientation. This was very, all new to me. I never experienced these things prior to uh, going on in this, this, this depth of intensive retreat. And this was around the time that I finally started psychotherapy. And I think this, this pivot or this addition was incredibly important for how I came to understand and integrate the Dharma. There tends to be a mindset out there, as I've already said, that one's Dharma practice or yoga practice is, in a way, sufficient to heal all wounds. This is a bit of a generalization, but I might suggest that Dharma and psychotherapy are actually two sides of a yin-yang dynamic as well. In Dharma practice, we emphasize awareness. We tend to rest as awareness of all the various things that occur during a session of practice. This resting as awareness, this inevitably magnifies the illuminating power of that awareness. And part of what it is that is revealed are the unresolved patterns that now clamor for our compassionate attention and care. And this is where I think the tools from Western, this Western psychological model come in so nicely to help us unpack and, in a way, de-inflame these patterns that uh, do get revealed through the awareness of our practice. So what follows is by no means, what I'm about to get into now, by no means is meant to function as a substitute for psychotherapy, but please consider it as an adaptation of Dr. Richard Schwartz's psychotherapeutic model of internal family systems as applied to an exercise you can bring to your practice of yin yoga or meditation. And as I mentioned in my conversation with Richard Schwartz, there's a common list of difficult mind states in Buddhist and yogic literature known as the hindrances or the nivaranas. These are challenging mind states that often make practice difficult. And more often than not, when a yogi or yogini encounters them, they quickly, the, the practitioner will quickly try to get past or beyond them or to get rid of them. And the traditional list mentioned in early Buddhism includes uh, mind states like desire, aversion, restlessness and worry, sleepiness or sluggishness, and doubt. Keep in mind, please, this is simply a short list or a cheat sheet for commonly encountered difficulties in practice. And whenever I would share with Jack Engler that in my practice I was working with one or several of these hindrances, he would start saying something like this. He would say, sounds like a part of you is calling for some attention. And at first, I didn't quite like this comment. In some ways, it felt infantilizing. Like I had to go have a kindergarten-level conversation with an immature part of me. Potentially, this conversation would occur over cookies and milk. But after engaging with the recommended inner dialogue that Jack guided me through, I could no longer deny the implicit and explicit value of developing greater familiarity and open dialogue with the various characters of my inner world. So this is what follows now. This is the process that I learned from Jack, and it's one that I still use frequently in my own practice to this day if and when a part of me is beginning to act out or engage in a kind of behavior that is generating more cacophony in my life over harmony. 
And here's how it works. And I just want to say, too, I will link to a short blog on this process so that you can print it out or look at it, refer to it more easily after you've listened to the podcast here. Um, but during a period of practice, whether it's during a yin yoga practice or a period of seated meditation, once I'm reasonably settled and collected, so maybe after five or ten minutes of just settling and being receptive to my body and breath and mind, I will ask, I will openly ask the inner assembly of my subparts, I'll ask if any of them would like to speak with me. And for me, in the beginning, this felt like a kind of descent into a mild state of insanity the first few times I did it. Having a conversation or a conscious conversation with a subpersonality can feel almost as ridiculous as openly talking to yourself out loud in public. It kind of feels weird and creepy, or it can look weird and creepy. But the more I thought about it, I realized the difference between consciously talking to oneself and unconsciously talking to oneself, which is the norm for the vast majority of waking experience for many people, of unconsciously talking to yourself throughout the day nonstop, I came to see that a conscious conversation is probably a bit of an improvement. So sometimes a part will immediately volunteer to have a dialogue with me. They'll step forward just like a student in a class and say, I'll volunteer. And at other times, I might have to wait for an experience or conflict to crop up during the actual practice. So I might not have anyone stepping forward, and I might just let the practice continue in a more natural, spontaneous way, letting things unfold. And as and when a conflict crops up, that's when I tend to see the energy of the part that might be manifesting as restlessness or agitation or boredom or you know, a lot of inner criticism. Either way, once I establish that part of me is looking for attention, usually, again, evidenced or manifest through the experience of distress or agitation, I then engage with this following process. And the first step is to welcome the part. Welcome. First and foremost, I wholeheartedly welcome this part to join me in a dialogue. This process works best when the welcome is sincere and genuine. In other words, if I open up to a part with a kind of grudging resistance, the process tends to be less effective. So as you welcome this part into a dialogue with you, please try to remember that this is literally a part of you. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's you. It's part of you that evolved and took shape at a particular point in time in your life. It developed a very specific strategy and role at that time to keep you safe, protected, and well. Only now, at this moment, where you are in your life, its role and strategy for safety and well-being are very likely no longer relevant or optimal. So this means the part has kind of an outdated or limited strategy for achieving happiness and peace in your life now. But we need to begin with this basic understanding that the part means us well. The part has a strategy for happiness and its intentions are good. They've just been sort of in these roles that the part has taken on have been ingrained for a long time and they need to be kind of transformed through collaboration with us. So the second part of this process is to listen. Once you've welcomed the part into dialogue with you, uh, the next step is to, to, to let it know that you're listening. So once having established that the part feels welcomed, I try to commu communicate to the part that, the f that first and foremost, my primary intention is to simply hear what it has to say, what it has to tell me. 
I'm here to listen is the refrain I might silently say towards the part a few times. And also, in addition to letting the part know that I'm going to be listening to it, there's another very crucial step in this process of creating a, a, a good dialogue and a good internal dialogue with a part. And that is this. Whenever you invite a part to dialogue with you, it's equally important for you as the core self to gently ask the, all the other parts of our inner world, to all the other parts of ourself that aren't being invited to dialogue right now, to ask those other parts to sit back and listen to your dialogue with the specific part. If you fail to ask your other parts to effectively sit out and listen in, this can create a bit of a pileup where other parts may listen to your dialogue, get triggered, and then jump in and pig pile on top of the conversation you're trying to have with your primary part there, and it can derail the conversation that you're trying to have. So asking the other members of the inner committee to sit quietly by and listen, this is hugely important. And you might even add, I often do this myself, you can even add and let them know that after you've checked in with the specific part, you'll come back to them and ask if they have anything to contribute or to share at that point. So you will be returning to them and giving them their voice back. But just for the specific duration, maybe the 10, 15 minutes that you're going to be working with one part, ask everybody else to stay quiet. Now you're ready for step three or stage three in this process, which is the inquiry stage, the stage of inquiring into the role of the part. At the stage of inquiry, the dialogue turns now to getting to know and understand this part more. And I often ask my parts any or all of any of these questions. I'll ask these questions slowly, giving lots of space and time for the part to respond. So I'll, I'll read through these questions rather quickly now, but in an actual exercise, it might take up to 10 minutes or so just to go through the idea of these questions to, to, to kind of harvest more information about the history and role of this particular part. So I'll ask the part what its name is. Does it have a name? I might ask how long it's been part of my life or if it remembers and can tell me the circumstances around which this particular part was born into. I might ask the part what role it feels that it's playing in my life and how it feels around that role, particularly uh, how, it, how does it uh, view its role. Oftentimes you'll find the parts have a very ambivalent feeling about their role. They feel that they do have to do something so that some bad things don't happen, but they don't really like their role very much. So it's important to get their feeling around how they view their role. And then I also sort of more generally ask, is there something that you would like to tell me? Is there something that the part wants to tell me? Or is, it, is there something that the part is concerned about that I might not be seeing? The overall point here, I just want to reiterate, the overall point is to enter into an open conversation with the part about how it sees its role in your life. You get a sense of its history, its roles, how it views its roles, and all of this is important information to help establish a caring connection for you to have with the part. From caring connection as core self, we are then in a better position to collaborate with this part in order to harmonize its role in our life with all the other parts. But in the beginning of engaging with this approach, it may be difficult to remember all these specific questions. 
So again, in the show notes, I'll be including a link to a blog with the outline of these steps, including the questions themselves where they'll be available. And I would recommend becoming very familiar with this outline and list of questions before beginning this inner part work. And for some, it might be a good idea to even print this sheet out to keep it nearby your practice space for a quick glance, uh, if necessary, during the actual process. But to now move from the point of inquiry, the third stage, to stage four, which is the process of collaboration, this is the step in the process that we begin to collaboratively reassign the part's role. Oftentimes, as I've been trying to say, the part will have developed or evolved at a particular point in our life, often in those early years of childhood when we were vulnerable and fragile. And this part will have developed a strategy of protecting you at that time. It served a vital function in terms of your safety back then. But now, this role is no longer really functional, adaptive, or helpful. So once you've had a chance to let the part describe to you how it sees its role in your life, then you, you as core self, can now begin to function like the conductor of the symphony, encouraging, directing, leading this part towards a better role within the overall holistic uh, totality of your being. I often think of it like facilitating the promotion of the part from an unpleasant duty they begrudgingly performed at some point in time to kind of a a job elevation or a job promotion, elevating the position of this part into your inner or my inner cabinet. The idea here is to constructively collaborate with this part to help reassign its role to be in harmony and alignment with your core self. And in a sense, to shed or outgrow its old role, which has now become obsolescent, disruptive, and counterproductive. Once I've asked the part to share with me how it views its role in my self-ecosystem, I will then ask it if it would be open to considering a new role. Now, if yes, then at that point we can collaboratively pursue what that new role might look like. But if not, if if the part's resistant to collaborating, for whatever reason, for whatever reason there's resistance, um, I might simply ask it if it's to keep its current role as it is, but to amend the intensity of that role. And let's just say I have, a, as an example, let's say I have a part that is getting really angry at inappropriate times. So it flares up and, and acts out at inappropriate times. I might ask this part to send me a flare of distress, literally like a flare gun. Shoot a flare gun, metaphorically off in my mind, uh, when you sense this distress so that we can have a conversation about that instead of acting out the anger in the situation that then kind of becomes problematic. And usually just uh, scaling back the intensity of the behavior itself is enough of a reassignment or reassignation of its role to improve the inner ecosystem of harmony. And then once I'm able to come to an agreement with the part that I'm working with, that they are on board with either their new role or their slightly um, less intense version of their previous role, I make sure to thank them for their time in speaking with me. And this is the final stage of the process, which I call the, the stage of assurance or assurance giving. I let the part know that he or she can speak to me whenever they see the need. And I assure them that I will be available and ready to listen. And once those assurances have been given, 
I thank this part, and then I ask all the other parts if anyone else has a concern or something to bring to my attention. So something they may have observed in my conversation with that specific part, they may have some thoughts and feelings about that, and I welcome their input there. And if I have time in that particular session of practice, uh, I will address some of those concerns then and there. But sometimes I just uh, don't, I run out of time and I'll just say to these parts that bring up their concerns, I say, we'll come back to this at the next practice. So tomorrow or whenever it is I come back to my meditation cushion or to my mat, I say, we'll, we'll, we'll reconnect on these themes then, just pause and know that I'll come back. But in this way, by periodically checking in with these parts of my practice, this tends to promote, not always, but it tends to promote a greater harmonization of their energies leading to less frequent periods of internal conflict amongst them. And the converse seems to be true as well. If I go for a stretch of neglecting to check in with these parts, this becomes a setup for more intrapersonal, it's in me, uh, conflict within me, as well as inter or external conflict with other people. So I don't have a clever acronym for this process yet. The words of welcome, listen, inquire, collaborate, Assure, these don't really lend themselves to a clever, uh, witty acronym. And in a way, I don't want the process to get overly simplified or reduced to a glib formula either. Perhaps it's better to think of it like a suggested framework to consider starting from, but one that can, one that, it's one that can be creatively developed or altered and expanded in ways that make intuitive sense to you, the self-engaged person within the process. And again, to make it easier to familiarize yourself with this approach to working with your inner parts, I will link again to a short blog on my website that outlines the steps I've just walked you through. The steps of welcoming, listening, inquiring, collaborating, and assuring. And there'll be a link for that in the show notes. But as another way, another comment, I just want to say that as in yin yoga practice, just as in yin yoga, it's common between yin asanas to rest in a rebound or resonance pose, either lying supine or prone on the floor, feeling the aftermath of the previous pose's effects throughout your being, sensing the release of tension and perhaps the circulation of chi or prana in the body. When working with your inner parts in the ways that I've been suggesting, I would also consider spending some time after the dialogue and rest in an inner position of mental rebound or resonance. In other words, let the aftermath of the dialogue resonate through you. Often, though not always, but often there can be a very soft internal sense of quietude, like the subtle awareness of the hum of the refrigerator going off. You weren't necessarily aware of the hum of the refrigerator before, But the moment it goes off, if you're present and awake, you'll notice that a new dimension of quietude opens up. And it can be like that internally. When a dynamic of tension between parts or within a part, when that tension dissolves or unravels or is unburdened, there can be an experience of calm and quiet that unfolds similar to the experience of a distant hum suddenly switching off. Of course, I need to remind everyone, I don't consider this approach to be a substitute for psychotherapy, and I acknowledge that this approach to working with parts or the inner parts is not as sophisticated or as nuanced as the methodologies developed within Dr. Schwartz's internal family systems model. This is simply an approach that is strongly derived from that model, 
And within its somewhat limited manner, I personally have found it very helpful to dialogue with my internal parts um, in this particular way. And I want to just share that with you. Now, one of the axioms of the internal family systems world is this. All parts are welcome. All parts are welcome. And over the years, I've really come to value the wisdom of this slogan. Years ago, in my early days of practice, so much of my practice energy was focused on trying to cut parts out. But as I integrated more of this IFS internal family systems approach, I came to appreciate the wisdom and compassion of Schwartz's statement. Again, if you can be an inner bodhisattva, it's much easier to be an outer bodhisattva. So perhaps there is credence to the idea that the more we can tolerate within, the more we can integrate within, the more we can tolerate and integrate without. And perhaps after considering these reflections on working with the internal world, you might begin to hear this oldie and goldie from Rumi with new ears. So here's the guest house once again. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. that concludes today's episode and I hope this reflection is of some support to you in your practice and teaching. In the show notes I've left links for Dr. Schwartz's organization as well as a link to the blog I mentioned where I outline this approach to working and integrating this work in your practice. Next on the podcast I'll be releasing my conversation with a Taoist professor Robin Wong where we discuss all things Taoism and yin-yang theory. I've been developing a great collaborative friendship with Robin since we met, and I'm excited to bring you that episode soon. In the meantime, please stay safe and continue your gentle efforts in cultivating your inner bodhisattva. Thanks for listening today, and I'll see you in the next episode.